Public health is a population-based field of science focused on preventing disease and promoting health. Every week, we will be engaging in interactive discussions and analyses of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is Gordon, and I'm here with our public health panel, Ben, LaShawn, Will, and a special guest who will be introduced later. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. The Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, FAO, published a report indicating that the pandemic will create a shortage of food for some populations. Initially, not because of food scarcity, but rather because of a strain on food supply chains. In this episode, we'll be discussing an article by Jesse Young titled, The Coronavirus Pandemic Could Threaten Global Food Supply, UN warns, and the extra supports that are needed to keep the agricultural industry afloat. One of the longer-term consequences of a disruption of food supply is the incidence and prevalence of food insecurity. To discuss this important issue, we have invited a special guest. Jessica Schill is currently a policy advisor with the Bee Farmers of Ontario, where she maintains various farmers' physiological and psychological wellness portfolios and reviews government food safety, labeling, and sustainability policies. Jessica is also a registered nurse and graduate from Western University's Master of Public Health program. She's a lifelong advocate for agriculture and rural health care, having grown up on a grain farm outside of Palmerston, Ontario, and having practiced as an RN at a small community hospital located in Chesley, Ontario. Jessica's professional goal is to further define and promote the link between agriculture and public health as it relates to Canadians and our global community. In part, Jessica is a foodie and loves putting a creative spin on traditional recipes. She hopes to write her own cookbook one day. So uh, thanks for coming on, Jessica. Thanks for having me. So we, the reason we brought you on is um, to, to get your expertise on, um, you know, how the pandemic is affecting our food supply chain and how, what are the long-term consequences on things like uh, food insecurity and the public health consequences of food insecurity. So the best place to start here is if you could maybe help uh, us to describe what food, food insecurity is. Yeah, for sure. So um, there's definitely two different ways of looking at food security and insecurity. So it's kind of the the availability of food, if that physical food is there, and if you have access to that food. But then there's also some other factors that kind of go into food security and insecurity. So, you know, do you have um, the, the physical means of that food? Is that food there for you to purchase or to get? Um, and can you afford it? But then is there also enough? Is there enough to go around for your family? Is there enough to go around for your community? Um, and is that food that that's there, you know, healthy and balanced and, and contributing to an active lifestyle? Also, there's kind of the subjective view of food security. So is there access to good food? And good food is definitely different for every person or every family. Um, and that can kind of bring in some cultural some cultural variability too, because what uh, good food might be defined by one family might not be the same for another family, hmm. and especially if it's culturally appropriate for that family. And then there's also stability. So sure, you have a, maybe enough, and maybe it's good, it's good quality, it's healthy, but is it a stable supply? So is there going to be enough food for this week, maybe next week, next year type thing? And is there enough mm-hmm. to go around for everyone and in that stable that stable supply? 
Um, so yeah, there's a lot of factors that go into it. So in terms of security versus insecurity, security would be having access to that food and, and meeting all those factors. But then insecurity would be quite the opposite where you maybe don't have access or maybe um, you're, you're of a lower income family and you can't afford, you know, healthy, nutritious food. It might not be an option for your family. And same with, you know, maybe you live in an area where maybe you're of a new immigrant family and you don't have access to culturally appropriate food. Yeah, so it seems like as it is with many other factors in society, the socioeconomic lens and just whether an individual or a family has the financial means to get food plays a big role in determining if, if they are food secure or insecure. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, I would definitely say that for sure. Social, economic, and cultural factors definitely play a big part in whether you can consider yourself food secure or insecure, or even the location you live is your location that you live in food secure or insecure. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty complex, a pretty complex issue, I would say. So I've, I've heard these terms kind of being thrown around when discussing food security slash food insecurity. Um, the first one I've heard is called um, a food desert. Yeah, I've definitely heard that term used, um, especially in in rural areas or maybe different urbanized areas where there isn't access to nutritious food. So in terms of a food desert, is there a grocery store that's nearby? Is there restaurants nearby? Um, And are those grocery stores, maybe convenience stores, um, food outlets, do they have or are they supplying healthy, nutritious food? And I think food deserts definitely something you can consider when you live in a more regional or remote area. Because you might not have, you might not live in close proximity to a grocery store or a food outlet. So you really have to prepare for your next meal much farther in advance if you live in a food desert, I would say. Um, But even in urban areas where there is lots of grocery stores and different food outlets, sometimes the food outlets or the restaurants that are there aren't supplying healthy, nutritious foods. And I think that could be considered a food desert as well. Mm, Okay, yeah. So I guess that that accessibility and like affordability component comes in as well as Thanks. Um, the quality component comes in as well. Yeah, for sure. That contrasts nicely with um, another term we've also learned, which is a food swamp, which um, the way I understand it is an abnormally high concentration of fast food restaurants in kind of poorer neighborhoods, which is almost almost a parallel but opposite problem to a food desert where you don't have access to maybe good good and nutritious foods. So, you know, just thinking out loud, I'm wondering, you know, if people are going to start maybe eating out more, eating out at uh, cheaper fast food restaurants and taking stuff home. We, we know that delivery in a lot of communities can help to bridge the gap between, you know, maybe you don't want to take a 30 minute bus ride to go to the grocery store. But then, you know, you have apps like Skip the Dishes and then you can get McDonald's to your doorstep in 20, 30 minutes. So I'm this also makes me concerned about you know, maybe more people will start to eat unhealthy food. Yeah. And it's definitely something I think policymakers are considering as well, because right now we haven't quite seen the price inflation in the grocery stores for fresh fruits and vegetables yet, but I think it's Mm -hmm. definitely going to come soon. And then that's when, you know, families are going to have to consider buying fresh fruits and vegetables or buying food that they can afford. And sometimes, you know, McDonald's is cheaper than buying a full cart of groceries, um, which is pretty, pretty concerning. And takeout is very accessible. And for those families that live a very busy, busy lifestyle, sometimes they don't have time to reach the grocery store and things like that. And if you have five or six kids, it's, it's already busy enough as it is to try and balance all of those responsibilities. So I think there's definitely is going to become a surge where we see a lot more people striving for unhealthy options, whether it be takeout or, 
or even less nutritious, quick, fast foods, such as chips and, and sugar, like high, high sugar foods, um, because they ultimately are cheaper than buying the fresh fruits and vegetables. And I think we will see that, see that to come when we start to see an inflation due to the lack of availability of the fresh produce and fruits and vegetables and stuff like that. So I definitely think the, the food swamp, which is an interesting term, might be something we have to consider and definitely policymakers are going to have to consider in the future as well. You brought up a good point regarding inflation of fresh fruit and groceries and all that stuff. I was wondering from your expertise, how does this extra pressure on the food production chain influence the incidence and prevalence of food insecurity? So for example, the Food and Agricultural Organizations of the United Nations reported that the pandemic will create a shortage of food for some populations, not because of food scarcity, but rather through a strain on the food supply chains. So I was wondering if you could have any comment on that. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a really good point. And the food insecurity that's going to come out of COVID-19 is going to be one that defines the difference between low-income and high-income families, especially when it comes to Mm. access to high-quality food. So people that have the means to buy um, the inflated produce, they'll be able to afford that and continue life as normal. Whereas the families that are maybe of lower income status or or aren't working right now, um, when those prices do inflate, aren't going to be able to access those. But mm-hmm. the availability won't necessarily be the problem because we'll still have it. With our strong import and export markets in Canada, we'll still be able to get things like tomatoes and, and bananas um, and different things like that. And if we can't grow them here this year. So that's that's a positive, but it's also a negative because it's going to put a defining link between our population. But in terms of strain on the food supply chain, a big issue right now is going to be labor. So in Canada, usually we have around our growing season, we have a lot of migrant workers that come to Canada to offer Mm -hmm. help during the growing and harvesting Mm -hmm. seasons. And unfortunately, due to COVID-19, only about 9,400, the 13,000 workers that come every year are going to be able to get here. So that's going to place a lot of strain on the people that uh, harvest and produce fresh vegetables and fruits like tomatoes and strawberries and anything you see that's seasonal. Mm. So that's that's going to be a huge issue. I know asparagus, um, asparagus season is within the next month and they're going to have some challenges harvesting asparagus because they don't have the workers and the workers aren't here yet. Um, so labor is definitely a big issue, not just on farm, but also in the processing section of the food supply chain. So, um, they've had to change in different processing plants, whether it be livestock or fruit and veg, they've had to change how the employees can work. So, you know, um, maintaining their, uh, two meter distance and, um, increased hand hygiene. So then there's extra time needed and extra resources needed by the processing plants to house the employees. Mm -hmm. And then they've also had issues with employees that have tested positive for COVID. Um, So then any other employee that has come in contact with them also needs to uh, isolate for the 14 days. So that's definitely taken away from the amount of people that are able to assist in the processing side of the the supply chain. So there is a bit of a backlog there, which is challenging because, you know, the stuff is happening on farm, but it's not necessarily getting to the grocery store just because there is that middleman and there's so many challenges around labor. Mm. Yeah, and then another big issue, um, especially in Canada, and I'm I'm assuming it would be similar globally, but um, a big portion of outputs that come from primary production go to restaurants and hospitality services. 
And so um, agriculture in itself has taken a direct hit because that is a huge, huge uh, market for different products like dairy and eggs and chicken and and grains. So unfortunately, in the first couple of weeks of COVID, we ended up with a lot of food waste just because our policies weren't ready to handle what we were going to do with redirecting food. Um, So, for example, some dairy farmers had to dump their milk. So, you know, you work so hard for that milk all year round and you have to dump it down the drain because there's nowhere for it to go. And same with asparagus, for example, they're having trouble harvesting. So they may have to leave some of the asparagus in the field if they can't get it all out, which is really tough for them. You know, you spend so much time putting all that effort in. Um, But actually, CFIA, so the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, has been um, really, I guess, reactive would be a good way to describe it in making sure that we are able to move that food somewhere else now. So we're not contributing to that waste and because there is people in need that do need it. So they've been able to reroute any food from primary production and processing that was supposed to go to restaurants and hospitality services to the grocery store. So I don't know if anybody's noticed in the grocery store lately, you can buy flats of eggs which yeah. isn't something we would normally be able to buy. So that's that's a pretty um, a pretty great move by CFIA to be able to do that. Um, mm. And then as you're moving kind of through the supply chain, there's definitely some issues um, that come from consumer behavior, which I'm sure we've all heard about in the media, but that ultimately affects yeah. supply and demand. Yeah. Mm. So their food choice, the panic, um, the even the limiting on number of products because of the panic, that really changes how how the supply and demand equation works. And then it kind of is like a ripple effect down to the producer. So, yeah, there's definitely lots of different spots in the supply chain where COVID-19 has has hit and hit hard. Yeah, it seems very complex. We learned in our Master of Public Health program about food waste, right? And food waste occurs at all stages of production from essentially farm to plate, right? So I'm wondering, you know, as food becomes more of a precious commodity i know there's going to be food waste because um you know farmers and distributors aren't able to move fresh produce um quick enough to you know if they export there's a lot of um you know disruptions in transportation for example so there there will likely be food waste occurring now but you know at the household level we learn that a lot of food waste usually takes place there but i'm wondering now if people will be more mindful of how precious food is and not waste or throw out some of the things that uh, maybe they have in their kitchen that would ordinarily go in the garbage. Yeah, I would I would definitely hope people are considering that, especially with how precious food seems to be nowadays. And even when you go into the grocery store, some of the things you want to buy aren't there. So I, I definitely hope people are considering that when they're making their choices in the kitchen. And even with the things they're buying, are they able to eat all of that by the time it's going to perish type thing? Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that it has definitely been a consideration at the primary producers level too, because they have been considering, you know, should we plant this crop this year? Are we going to be able to harvest it in time? And is there something we could plant instead that we're able to able to kind of combat the other curveballs we're being thrown by COVID? So you know, a lot of producers, for example, who are planting fruits and vegetables are considering planting grains because they, they can do that on their own without the extra needed labor. So, yeah, I think it's definitely the food waste is being considered at all all aspects for sure. Is Canada typically more of an exporter in food or an importer? And I'm sure it differs between like what kinds of produce and everything like that. And from there, I, I was kind of wondering like how this p- pandemic would affect countries who typically depend more on exported foods or countries who get more of their GDP from exporting foods and things like that. So what I kind of want to just discuss is from an international lens, 
how this pandemic has affected various countries in the way they're reacting to it. Think of those smaller countries, maybe like smaller island nations who get the bulk of their food imported from other countries, right? But then with all this um, global bans and just restrictions for travel and even just uh, shipping and all this logistical things being put on hold, how are they affected? Yeah, so that's a importing and exporting and, and markets are definitely a complex, complex conversation to have. But um, ultimately, in, at least in Canada, so our borders are still open for essential services. So we still are able to import and export, not necessarily uh, fresh produce, because that's something we generally keep in in the country when it's seasonal. Um, but things like grains and whatnot are, are definitely still being considered for import and export. And I was thinking about this the other day, and I think it's interesting that it's going to be import and exports are a great, a great thing to have. And it's going to be interesting to see how it looks in other countries, because, you know, individuals living in lower income countries, are they able to afford this food once it's imported? Because ultimately, it's going to be more expensive when it's coming from somewhere else, right? And so I think that's interesting. But I think it is on on onus of Canada to continue our exports because we are helping those countries that are maybe already in a humanitarian crisis and will continue to be or even in a worse situation when COVID-19 ends. Is this potentially going to crush um, domestic agriculture in those low and middle income countries where um, they're maybe importing more than they normally would? And does it affect those farming communities for seasons going into the future? I don't know if you could speak to that. Okay, yeah, then that's a really good question and and definitely something that the news has touched on quite a bit lately. Um, And I think it's interesting because um, agriculture looks so different in every country, right? And so when you're importing, you definitely are throwing um, an extra wrench in the balance, right, for trying to spread out and support your domestic agriculture, but then also, you know, make sure you're feeding everybody at the same time. And so um, I know a huge issue that they're seeing in, in different parts and different countries in Africa right now is a lot of farmers aren't able to work because they've either be fallen ill or um, also the labor restrictions. So they're hoping that other countries will continue to import um, because they're, they're kind of relying on uh, bigger countries like the U.S. and Australia and Canada to continue to send food their way. But then again, I don't know how that will affect their prices when it does get there because I'm sure it would be heightened. But yeah, it's a very, a very complex issue, especially when it comes to domestic egg um, and how to, to balance your imports and exports. But in Canada, we are lucky that we do have a pretty, um, a pretty balanced market and, and we do import and export quite a bit of food, whether it be from the US or Japan and China. So um, we are lucky that way. So, so I guess the issue of food insecurity, it seems to be a very big problem globally, right? Like the, the the UN in one of their reports from 2019, they mentioned somewhere around 820 million people around the world. It's like yeah. around one in nine being affected by um, food insecurity. And particularly children are extremely impacted by th- this issue. You know, things like hunger, malnutrition, stunted growth, and all that stuff. So I was thinking how food insecurity is in fact a public health issue. You know, like how exactly is it I guess, connected? Because a lot of people, when they think about food insecurity, they just think, oh, you know, it's it's agriculture related or it's, it's supply chain related, but they don't make that health wink. Yeah, and even um, just to 
extend the question. Um, people think of it as being binary, like you either have something to eat or you don't. But I think what Jess was saying today is it's a little bit more nuanced. There's traditional norms that come into there. There's food quality and all those things that come into there as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And actually, uh, I was thinking back to discussions around a wicked problem because it affects really like you said, all parts of the supply chain and and different uh, aspects of human life. And and in terms of public health, you know, food security looks different when when a person is involved in it, right? So you can have anywhere between malnutrition and overweight to obesity. There's there's really different aspects. But then also when you don't like food plays such a big part in your everyday life when you don't have access to clean or, or healthy or good quality food, um, it's impacting other parts of your day. So your energy level, um, if you have the energy to get up and do the things that you need to do in the day, even all the way to your ability to fight off disease, because, um, you know, having access to good quality food and clean water helps you build your immunity. And if you're not able to fight infections, then you're, you know, you're ultimately things with COVID, you could be predisposed or you could be more, more off to get it. And, um, also when you're, you're battling with things like malnutrition or undernutrition and overweight and obesity, you're, you're constantly dealing with, um, chronic inflammation. And so chronic inflammation also kind of triggers other things in your body that could predispose you to getting ill. Um, but then longer, if you're looking even farther into the future, if you are battling with different things, um, as part of malnutrition, you know, uh, you're looking at diabetes, chronic heart disease, even some respiratory issues, you know, you're, you're predisposed to. So having access to good quality food ultimately determines and is part of living a healthy life. And if you're able to, um, even, even, uh, mental health related things, having access to, uh, healthy food and, and eating a healthy diet helps you to improve your mental health and well-being, which which is so important, especially in times like COVID-19 when you're at home by yourself. So right. definitely, definitely super important there. Um, it, it, it's almost like a spiral effect. Uh, you know, once if you're food insecure and um, you could be predisposed to so many other conditions when you're not when your body's not getting the proper nutrition it needs. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, even we, we've talked about middle, low and middle income countries, but, you know, food insecurity is also a problem for even high income countries like Canada. It's kind of a hidden problem to a lot of people. Uh, in Canada, about one in eight households are uh, food insecure, which is equivalent to about four and, a half, four and a half million people. When we talk about stats on food insecurity, a lot of times vulnerable populations like uh, homeless people or even you know first nation first nations uh, people living on reserves aren't even captured in that data and they are disproportionately affected by food insecurity so I would caution a lot of people when they read uh, stats to think uh, the problem is probably a, a lot worse than we can actually measure and then another point uh, as well is that as you mentioned uh, children who are you know, in the critical age of development, if they are not receiving the proper food and nutrition that they need, uh, that brings a lot of problems in the future for developing diseases. Yeah, like when I when I was like think about food insecurity and its connection with public health, like the first thing that immediately comes to my mind is just how closely related it is with social determinants of health, right? And I think immediately to how much vulnerable populations like under the umbrella of lower SES communities or just groups 
there's like a subgroup of like vulnerable populations within that who are even more further disproportionately affected by um, food insecurity. And I guess groups that come to mind for me are typically, you know, women and children who in, I know in many parts of the world, a lot of times in the global South, when gender equity is still an ongoing struggle and an ongoing something to achieve, right? And here just, you know, it just comes up issues of, you know, things like land rights, access to, you know, credit or resources for, you know, women to be empowered, for them to be able to um, you know, be part of that decision-making discussion and to be you know, thoroughly involved in the whole food production or or just even so that they have um, agency to be able to go out there and you know, work and, and have money so that they can support the family and not have to depend on others. I just think that it's, it's a very important um, point to make. And also just how, with for, for even for just children who don't have that food, um, the access to good food, you know, it affects things like developmental stunting, you know, physical or psychological and just all kinds of development and how it can affect them further down, you know, further down their line in their life and things like that. So with this said, um, we can see that malnutrition is one of the biggest uh, drivers of uh, premature mortality in the world. A lot of people do die from even not even just undernourishment, just from hunger. And um, as Will was tr- Will was making the connection, you know, socioeconomic status is very much related to income, what you eat, and your chances of survival and not getting uh, a disease later on in life. So when we look at the whole scope of the problem, what are some of the things that we can do to keep the f- uh, food supply chain going so that our vulnerable populations do not get more food insecure than they already are and just maybe you could speak from your your policy lens yeah um that's a great point and actually just out of the the u.s and i don't always uh don't, i'm not sure if i always agree with things that come out of the u.s that have to do with covid19 but um actually <laughs> the u.s uh very recently has decided to support their producers and also support their their communities their vulnerable communities um, with what they're calling food boxes, which I thought was really interesting. So they're what they're doing is food that isn't being rerouted in the supply chain. So uh, much like I talked about earlier, things that were supposed to go to hospitality and restaurant services that maybe can't be used in grocery stores. Um, what they're going to do is the U.S. is going to repackage those and put them in boxes and donate them to food banks and, and community churches and faith-based organizations um, and any any other type service type community organizations um, to distribute that food to um, families that live in those communities that are of vulnerable populations or, or lower income that might not be able to purchase groceries when inflation does happen. So I think that was a really cool uh, approach made by the U.S., though they haven't released too many details about it, but um, they have said that they're going to commit $3 billion worth of funding to it. So um, I thought that was a positive. And in terms of policy here at home in Canada to keep our our food in the grocery stores. We need to prevent having an export ban um, and import bans and stuff like that to keep both a good amount, good quantity, quality, um, culturally appropriate food in our grocery stores is really important. And then it's definitely interesting to see how other organizations, government organizations are going to react in the future. I do think this was a learning lesson for the Canada Food Inspection Agency when they um, 
decided to reroute food from hospitality and restaurant services to our grocery stores. And I definitely think that was really important um, because we did see that uh, panic buying and stockpiling at the beginning and the emptying of grocery shelves. And so now everything's starting to pile back up and look plenished because um, of the rerouting of, of food. So I think that's maybe a policy they need to consider for future as well. And maybe next, not hoping that we ever get a pandemic again, but maybe, right. maybe we next time we'll, yeah, next time we'll be more prepared for something like that. Um, and to prevent a food shortage in Canadian grocery stores, at least. I remember like when this thing first started, I went into the grocery store and like, I wanted to get, you know, some fresh fruits. And the only thing that was there was like half a not so ripe mango and like a pineapple. And then the other day when I went grocery shopping, like all the shelves were just back to the normal, um, I guess, quantities. And I guess, it, yeah, it's, it's a really cool what they did with just changing that up and just making sure that the grocery stores were stocked first, you know, since most of the restaurants were, you know, um, kind of on shutdown. Yeah. And, yeah. and another challenge too is, so a lot of grocery stores, I don't know if you guys seen this in, in your local grocery stores, but they were putting limits on different products, right? So your yep. meat, definitely your toilet paper, <laughs> things <laughs> like that. Um, but um, in terms of, you know, being able to get the food where it needs to go and preventing the backlog, and I understand it was a, a response to the panic buying, but removing those limits in the grocery stores would definitely help remove the backlog that's also occurring in the processing facilities too. So we can keep moving the food through the supply chain and getting it to the consumers that want to buy it. Wow. So that's, that's, I didn't even think of that. That's like a, an unintended consequence of putting limits on items that you kind of back up the food supply chain and maybe things don't move, things get wasted. Uh, I never considered that. So thanks for sharing. Yeah, no problem. It's definitely, I know it's definitely true with livestock and meat products because that was that was a big thing that limits were placed on. And, um, you know, producers were worried because they're, they've got um, livestock ready to be processed so that we can buy them and, and have them in our freezers and stuff like that. And, and there wasn't the, there wasn't the movement that there was before. So, so do you think, cause I'm looking towards the future and how we can kind of move forward with this pandemic and God forbid we ever have a pandemic ever again, is this opportunity great for the tech sector or even, um, automation on, you know, the level of food production. So, you know, if you incorporate tech or automation into um, farming and agriculture, is that something that's, you know, is that a welcome technological innovation or what are some of the problems that farmers might have with that? Yeah, those are definitely two really cool points you guys bring up. So in terms of automation and tech in agriculture and even in the food supply chain in general, um, I know by primary producers, it's 100% welcome all the time. They love the idea of new technology because ultimately it affects them to, it helps them to be more efficient in their production, um, which is the goal, right? To be more efficient and produce better quality food all the time. And they want to make sure that they're producing the highest quality of food for our consumers. So um, actually... Uh, Talking about that, there is a lot of techno technological advances that have already taken place or are already in the process of, of happening, especially in ca Canadian and U.S. agriculture. Um, so, for example, uh, our, our planters, our corn planters, um, they're automated. So, uh, for example, instead of planting overplanting a row or something like that, the planter knows how many rows to plant and it will shut off its planters if it gets too close to another row. And the producer can decide how far apart he wants things so that he can make sure he's fitting the ultimate number of plants in that field to grow the best yielding crop. 
So basically, they're always using technological advances like that. Um, another one being uh, in our sprayers. So um, a lot of uh, sprayers, they're self-propelled now. So they can actually shut off the sprayer tips um, as they're getting close to the edge of the field. Or if it's going over a spot that it's already sprayed, it'll shut off the tips so that okay. um, they're not overspraying or, or anything like that, which is really cool because, you know, they're not wasting anything and they're doing the best they can for the crop and the soil health, which is really awesome. Um, and then another kind of automation is now they have GPS software that can connect you to at home. So for example, a, a producer's out in the field planting, he can see um, his maps can be downloaded to his phone or his MacBook at home and he can see where he's planted and what's been planted there and, and really take a good look at things from home. And then that system will also allow the parts servicers to come over into their tractor and service the equipment not like remotely. So they don't have to go into the dealer, take the tractor and the, it can all happen in the field while they're still working, which is really helpful to continue, you know, producing and, and being efficient in time and not having to take an entire day to go, mm-hmm. to go into town to get your parts and stuff. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of advances. And with those advances is also coming, um, there's going to be a lot more jobs in agriculture as well. Um, and, and food supply because they're going to need people to troubleshoot and it and, and tech to support these, these advances, um, and we are seeing that shift now with a lot of people studying different agricultural tech products and and being in that involved in that that way. So um, it's definitely a, a sector. Agriculture is a sector where there's lots of room for growth with tech and advances. Um, but it's definitely started. The ball's already rolling, which is really cool. Yeah. So Jess, you talked about some of these advances, but do you think there will be some kind of negative implications of implementing so many technologies? Um, I would say at this issue or at this point in time, it, it maybe isn't considered an issue. Um, the RBC published an article and basically what they were talking about was how all these advances in tech and these automations, um, will actually produce a lot more jobs in the agriculture sector. And so I think that's a really positive part of this. And, and a lot of producers don't see it as a a threat. Um, it definitely is a challenge because, um, you know, it is new and, and, our farming population is of a growing age as well. So definitely getting new people involved in agriculture is a big thing and, and younger producers. Right. Um, so, but the other challenge too with tech, I would say, is the access to data and Wi-Fi and internet mm. here. So oh, we don't, yeah. rural internet isn't, it's coming, but it's not everywhere yet. So um, a lot of farmland doesn't have access to, you know, LTE and, and stuff like that. So that definitely mm. poses some challenges on its own with just the access to maybe infrastructure, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jess, thank you so much for all the insight that you've provided us today. Um, especially just that last point about how transitioning and, and bringing in new technology might actually increase the workforce. Like that was something that I, you know, previously I would have thought that changing technology was, would mean less people and more automation, but it seems like that that's actually the op- that quite the opposite. So that's, that's very interesting. Um, I just wanted to, close this off with more of a human moment we know that you you know grew up on your grain farm and we just want to kind of want to ask how you know how your family is doing um, in terms of dealing with this whole pandemic situation you know how the community is doing in terms of you know the agricultural work and things like that if if you're if you're open to sharing that is (laughs) oh yeah for sure so um in terms of my family they are doing good they're healthy and well which is a plus but it has changed the way, um, you know, they the, the way they run their daily business. So instead of having um, mechanics and stuff come onto our farm and help with equipment and stuff like that, um, my dad and my brother are doing a lot of it on their own. And um, 
in terms of parts, the way you go in to pick up parts and stuff is definitely different. And my family's had to adjust by, by, you know, choosing only one person that can go do these different pickups and deliveries. Um, and instead of having a lot of people come on farm, uh, my parents are adapting to new ways of tech as well with zoom and and Skype. So, um, they're doing meetings that way, which is nice. And, um, my dad said plant will continue their plant for 2020 will continue as normal as of right now. Um, and it is, it is nice that, so our, with a grain operation, um, nobody has to be side by side or in any close proximity. So everybody can be in their equipment on their own. Um, they just increased, you know, cleaning practices. So, um, every, everybody's got a thing of Lysol wipes and, um, my mom has looked into installing plexiglass into the pickup trucks for when we do have to, you know, have more people in the vehicle to go out to different farms because our farms aren't just located in one area. So when they do have to drive somewhere together, um, they're considering installing plexiglass, much like you see in the grocery store to prevent the spread between the people sitting in the vehicle. Um, so definitely, yeah, they're definitely considering things, different things that we've never had to consider on our operation before. Um, Time for innovation, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. And the community's doing well as well. They're really, I think our community is pulling together because it is a local, rural, smaller community. Um, Mm -hmm. things are, things are a little bit different and maybe we're slower to change, I would say. But um, it is really great to see. We do have a lot of elderly people in our community, so there's not very many people out on the street. You don't see you don't see people gathering in, in driveways and stuff, which is nice. But um, even at our local grocery store, the the firefighters have started delivering groceries, which was we've never had delivery groceries here or even um, like pre made grocery orders. Yeah. And so our firefighters are delivering groceries, which is really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, <laughs> glad to hear that the you know the the folks are doing well. You know the operations seems like it's still it's still running, but just um with some it's COVID innovations and some tweaks. But that that's that's awesome to hear. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me today, guys. Thanks, Jess. I worry, thanks for coming. The agricultural community and food supply chains have drastically been affected by the COVID nineteen pandemic. In the longer term. This will influence the prevalence of food insecurity and those from the lowest income households will be disproportionately affected if the supply and demand imbalance leads to increases in food prices. It is important that governments and non-governmental agencies work together to ensure that food producers, food manufacturers, and food transporters have the tools required to continually supply global communities. If sufficient measures are not taken, This could lead to other public health issues such as malnutrition and obesity. As healthcare systems begin to recover, we must still remain vigilant to ensure that families can access and afford the nutritious foods they need. Thanks for listening. Remember, public health is a field of inquiry and an arena for action to improve lives one population at a time. This has been the Public Health Insight Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please drop us a like and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your podcast platform of choice. You can also send us your questions, comments, and suggestions for discussion topics at thepublichealthinsight.gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.